If you look at each plague that God brought through Moses to Egypt, the punishment for Pharaoh's hard-heartedness could seem harsh. But when you look at all of them together, we see that God was bringing lesser plagues, hoping for Pharaoh to release his people. As Pastor Daniel will teach, God works in the same way with us, hoping for repentance before judgment. Now, here's Pastor Daniel with his message entitled, The Plagues. This is one of those sections now that we're jumping into here in chapter 7, verse 14, that is, um, for a pastor, probably the least fun sections to talk about, because if we're good pastors, we actually care about people. And so when you see God bringing plagues and judgment on people, that's not always the easiest thing to discuss. Now, just because necessarily we may not like it or enjoy it, the Bible is still God's word, and there's things that we need to learn from it. And so, as we always do here as we're studying the word, we're never going to make excuses for God's word. And let's think about where we ended in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 7. It said, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And remember, we ended with the reality that what is going to transpire from Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, really till the end of chapter 12, these 10 plagues that get progressively worse, that these didn't have to happen. That's what we have to remember. The Bible teaches that God is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. That God is long-suffering, which means all Pharaoh had to do was do what God was asking, and none of these things would have happened. And oftentimes when we see the hand of God bringing judgment on something, everyone's like, well, what kind of a God would do that? Right? That's, that's the normal human response. But we forget that oftentimes the reason God is doing these things is because we've done all sorts of things to put God in a situation when he says enough is enough. Enough is enough. So like, I love my kids. But sometimes they decide that they're going to push the envelope a little bit. They're kids. 
right? And so what happens is, is that when Obadiah, and, and I love my son Obadiah, he's a great man. I think God's going to use him powerfully or else he's going to terrorize us for the rest of our lives. It's either one or the other with that guy. I'm, I'm hoping that because, because we love the Lord, we pray for him, he loves the Lord, that he's going to be just fine. But Obadiah is kind of like a ringleader for mischief. And he got that from his mom too. You you know, and and if you've ever met my wife, you know that that's absolutely the most absurd thing I'll say all night, probably. But, you you know, it's it's like he's always starting something, and I'll say, I'll give him the, first I'll give him the look, you know what I mean? You know, the the dad look, the, but then he only got the look, so he thinks it's not so bad, you know, so he pushes a little farther. And then I grab him, I sit him down, I say, now, Obadiah, if you do that again, it's going to go really, really, really bad for you, you know? And then he's like, oh, okay, okay. But because he only got the sit-down talking to. And then finally, I have to take him upstairs. And I take away all of his fun stuff, like his rocks and his microscope, all these things he digs. And then he gets upset. If you love me, you wouldn't do this. I'm like, oh, hold on. Let's, re- let's recap the events, buddy. You know? What did I tell you was going to happen the first time? He's like, uh. I'm like, you're right. I didn't say anything. I just gave you the look. You knew you shouldn't do that. And then the second time, what happened? He's like, well, you, you, know, you talked to me. And then what happened the third time? Then you took me upstairs. Ah. What would have happened if you listened the first time? I still have my rocks and my microscope. Aha. That's where we are in this narrative. God does not enjoy judgment. But if God were imperfect, he wouldn't judge. But because God is perfect, there comes a time when the only Righteous next step is to bring the just recompense for what's happening. Like, I'll give you a personal example. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I put a lot of things into my lungs for a long time. I know that if I were to come down with lung cancer, I can't say, God, why'd you do that to me? Because I could say, God, I did that to me for a long, long time, and I did that. See, oftentimes, whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. You know, that's a biblical principle. If you put apple seeds in the ground, you expect to get an apple tree, right? If you put rose bushes in the ground, you expect to get a rose bush. So whatever you sow, that you will also reap. And at this point, Pharaoh has sowed disobedience. God is come. I mean, listen, Moses comes, listen. The God of the Hebrews wants you to let him go so they can go worship. And all Pharaoh has to say is, okay. But what does he do? He inflicts hardship on them, hard bondage on them. He makes it worse for them. People are getting hurt. It's interesting that Moses and Aaron have gone back to Pharaoh many times simply saying, just let the people go. Just let the people go. All Pharaoh has to do is be obedient. But he's been disobedient. He's hardened his heart to the Lord. And now... You're going to find we're going to get a succession of 10 plagues. Now, at every point after one plague, Moses comes and says, listen, we let the people go. All at any point in this progression, which is going to culminate in the death of the firstborn, which you might say, well, where did that come from? Remember what the, what the Pharaoh did in the beginning? All the, the male sons were getting killed by exposure. Whatever measure you use, Jesus said what? It gets measured back to you. He's like, oh, you want, you want to kill some children? Okay. 
then that's what we'll do. At any point before it gets to that ultimate end, at any point if Pharaoh would have repented and let the people go, this would have been over. So Pharaoh is textbook, what you sow, that you will also reap. Now, we've called this the plagues part one because I want to take this as a large section from 714 to the end of chapter 11. And if you come here on Wednesday nights, you know that that is not possible to get you home before tomorrow morning if we're lucky. So we're going to just keep going and we'll break it up as we go. Now, what you need to realize is that these, the first nine plagues... Okay, just to give you a, as a, a macro view, the first nine plagues really break up into three groups of three plagues each. So there's, it's almost there's three plagues and three more plagues, then three more plagues, and then the 10th the plague is the culmination, the final plague. Now, the first plague in each group, the first plague, the fourth plague, and the seventh plague, are introduced by a warning delivered to Pharaoh early in the morning as he went out to the Nile. So each one of those, Pharaoh hears about it in the morning when he goes out to the Nile. The second plague in each group, numbers 2, 5, and 8, are also introduced by a warning, but it was delivered to Pharaoh in his palace. And then the last plague, 3, 6, and 9, commenced without any warning at all. Okay? So when you see things like that as you're looking at them in their totality, you're like, oh, this is really fascinating. First he goes to them in the morning. Then he goes to him in his palace. And then the third one just happens because Pharaoh's not listening anyway. And then the cycle repeats itself. Now, what's also interesting about this is that the plagues happen what we would expect to be over a a significant amount of time in totality. Maybe as little as a month, probably more like three to six months. So it happens very rapidly in the text. But as you'll find at the end of the first plague, it says it was seven days before the next plague began. So this is not something, when you read it, you have a tendency to think it happened on a Monday, it happened on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then the next Wednesday, they're, they're delivered. It's not like that. Although it reads very quickly, it seems to happen over a long period of time. And you will see those markers along the way where things are starting to rot and they're stinking before the next thing happens. So you have this kind of thing going on. Now, really, there are two main functions of these plagues, I would say. One, it's a theology of creation. You're going to find things that God created for the good of humanity that are now being used for ill, So that's one. And what's interesting is almost all of these plagues will show up in the book of Revelation as well. So this judgment that God used on Pharaoh in Egypt is also going to be an ultimate judgment that God is going to use on all of humanity who in the same way is in rebellion against God as Pharaoh was. So you have this theology of creation. It's things that God created to be good all of a sudden start to become problematic. And the second thing is that it's a systematic display of the power of Yahweh over the power of the different gods and goddesses that the Egyptians worship. So what we'll do is as we go through each plague, if you're a note taker and you enjoy this kind of thing, I will be giving you these are the gods that are being called into question. Now, I hate to say this, but it's really true is that this is in the Near East as much as today, this is the way gods are given their power. By saying, I am stronger than your God. Okay? That's the way it was in the nearest, and it is that way today. 
Listen, if you see what's gone on recently with, with the legalizing of same-sex marriage, if you see the, the approach that people who are of a same-sex persuasion are taking, they're like, look, we're good, moral, upstanding people. We love each other. We pay our taxes. We do good on our jobs. And we're doing our best to raise our kids. They're saying, look, don't judge me because of what you don't agree with, but look at the quality of my life. Now, if you talk to people who are Muslim and you ask them about Christianity, they'll often say, well, Christians, you, you guys don't live any differently than you would if you weren't Christian. I mean, there's the same amount of divorce. There's the same amount of immorality. And look at us as Muslims. The divorce rate in Islam is very, very low. What people are saying, in effect, is that you can show how powerful your God is by the testimony of your own life. Is that God showing himself strong? If you talk to missionaries in India, one of the things that they will tell you, about 50 years ago in India, now you have to realize the church in India has grown, it's the second fastest growing church in the world next to the church in China. Now the church in India, 50 years ago, Southern Baptist churches and charismatic churches, there was the same number of them. Now, 50 years later, there's about 500 times more charismatic churches then there are Southern Baptist churches. And you ask yourself, why? Now, I've gotten to do missionary work in India, work with both groups, and it's interesting because both the Southern Baptists and the charismatic churches say, well, the charismatic gifts of the Spirit prove that Yahweh is a God other than a whole pantheon of gods that people in India are, are apt to worship. Because in a culture where there's all these deities, the deity that shows himself strong gets more credit. So that's one of the things that's going on here. God told Pharaoh through Moses that Pharaoh is going to know that he is God. And the children of Israel are going to know that he is God. And the Egyptians are going to know he's God. And one of the ways the Lord does that is by showing that he is stronger than the gods that they are apt to worship. Now, what does that mean for us today? What do you believe is the prevailing God in America today? Money, probably, right? And you can extend that to comfort, ease, materialism. That is the overarching idol of our day and age. Now, if our life does not prove that Yahweh, who came to be a man in the person of Jesus, who's given us his spirit, is more worthy than material things, then we really say, well, the gods of our culture are actually stronger, better, more fulfilling, more satisfying. Now, what that means for us is not that we shouldn't be blessed. Some people are blessed with amazing means, but we should never let our possessions possess us. And if we lose our possessions, we need to make sure we remember that they are just things. And that even if we lost everything, God is still God. And if you ever struggle with that, just read the book of Job. You don't even have to read the whole book because it gets pretty laborious in some sections. Just read the first two chapters and you find Job lost everything, all of his kids, all of his money, his own health in very quick succession. But yet he still says, and I know that my redeemer lives and I will stand with him on that day. He doesn't understand it. But he's showing that his God is bigger than his stuff. I wonder sometimes if this recession that has been protracted for a long time, it reveals to us our idols. 
When things go in a way that we don't like and we really get upset about it, it oftentimes reveals to us the things that we put our trust in. And I think it's important, given the context of what we're seeing in the book of Exodus, that we also personalize it and say, God, will you help me understand Are you pushing against some of my own heart idols? I talked about more cultural idols like money, ease, materialism, but we all have personal heart idols as well. And if we were to go around the room, we all have different ones. And so, but we all have them. Martin Luther said that our hearts are variable idol factories. And that's why the very first of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other God besides me. Why? Because a fallen heart wants to have a million gods besides God. So we have to say, Holy Spirit, will you help me? Will you help me to see what my heart idols are? That you can show yourself stronger than my heart idols. That I will worship you alone and not try and satisfy myself based on something else. Something that never truly satisfies. So, let's jump on in. Chapter 7, verse 14. says this. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses Say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all the pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Now, which God is this going? It's obviously we're talking about the Nile River and Happy was H-A-P-I, also called Apis, A-P-I-S, was the bull god of the Nile and Isis was also the goddess of the Nile. And one other god that was worshipped, a god named Kanum, K-H-N-U-M, was the ram god, which was the guardian of the Nile. So we have Happy, Isis, and Kenum were all 
commonly worshipped in Egypt, and now we're seeing Yahweh come and strike right away, strike the river Nile. Now, notice what he, the Lord says, by this you will know that I am the Lord. See that? You get it right there in verse 17. By this you'll know. This is how you'll know. This water is going to become blood. Now remember, what was Moses asked to do? Go visit him in the morning when he goes out to the river. And you want to say to him, let my people go. Again, he's giving another opportunity. Another opportunity to amend their ways. He says, but he's not going to do it. Stretch out that rod that I asked you to bring. Now it's interesting. The water turned to blood. There's some divine irony there. They shed innocent blood by the Nile, right? Remember the children in, in chapter one were given to be exposed on the river Nile. There, there was blood throughout all of Egypt. What's interesting is this is a lesser plague than what's going to happen with the death of the firstborn. See all the irony in that? What this teaches us is this. This teaches us that God oftentimes, when he's beginning to allow the the reaping of what we've sown, oftentimes we'll do it in a lesser way with the hope that we'll repent before he gives a full-blown judgment. He does it more subtly, less harmfully in the beginning so that we would change and amend our ways. And we have to ask ourselves, is there anything that we're doing that we know is wrong, but we're still doing it, and we're already seeing the beginnings of these? We're seeing God giving an opportunity by bringing some sort of issue that isn't a full-blown calamity, but you know why it's happening. See, oftentimes, Pastor Bill said it in a message about, it must have been two months ago now, and one of his points was, we fail to think consequentially. And I, I remember when he wrote that, I just wrote it down, I tweeted it, I texted it to myself, because I'm like, you know, that's a big problem. Oftentimes, we're making decisions, and we're failing to think consequentially. We're failing to think, if I continue down this road, it is going to end up here. And oftentimes, before we get to the full-blown calamity, there's all sorts of markers along the way. That it's something is going wrong and all we need to do is turn around and we're going to avert the calamity, but yet we ignore the markers. And so I want to encourage you today, if you're here today and I'm sharing this and I'm saying, hey, be on the lookout for things you know that is wrong, that is disobedient, and you're starting to see those markers, you need to heed those markers and you need to turn. The first word of the gospel is the word what? Repent. Repent is a biblical word. It simply means to turn around. It means you're trying to go to California on I-5 and you realize that you just passed Longview. Right? From here, you go, you're going north. You need to go south. When you realize you're going the wrong direction, what do you do? You, you get off at the next exit. You go under or over the highway and you go the other way. That's repentance. That's what it means. It literally means just to change directions. I'm heading this way. I decide I'm going to turn from the way that I'm going, which is a way of rebellion, and I'm going to turn around. I'm going to come back to the way God is pointing. So, brothers and sisters, if you're in here today, don't think it's by chance. Don't think we're studying the plagues by chance. It's just the next section where we left off. If you are in rebellion and they are the beginning earmarks of God bringing to pass calamity in your life because of your decisions, then stop today and turn around. Jesus is 
In this first part of Daniel's explanation of the plagues, we heard how this judgment on Pharaoh parallels the final judgment that we hear about in Revelation. In the first plague, the river turned to blood as Yahweh declared his power to the people. It's our joy to bring you Jesus is Real Radio each day here on this station. We want to give you the opportunity to partner with us here at Jesus is Real Radio so we can bring the ministry to as many people as possible. Simply log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and select Partner from the main menu. There you can help spread God's Word by becoming a monthly supporter or by giving a one-time gift. Jesus is Real Radio is the radio ministry of Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. The messages that you hear each day here on Jesus is Real Radio were produced from messages that Pastor Daniel shared on Sunday mornings and the midweek study. It's our prayer that this teaching from God's Word blessed and encouraged you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Make sure to tune in again as Pastor Daniel will share what it meant when the sorcerers in Egypt replicated turning water to blood just like God did through Moses. We can know how to discern lies. There's more to come from Pastor Daniel's series entitled The Passover. Please glance at the clock right now and make plans to join us again for another edition of Jesus is Real Radio.